0: panic many are really concerned about whether the person next to them on on transit or at work is sick and when everyone is talking about if their neighbor is infected with disease I do wonder if we in the church are as concerned about whether the person next to us here is infected with sin And Paul was very much gripped by a real concern for people in the Corinthian congregation, most pointedly in the sense that he was aware of the possibility, as we have considered, that his preaching may not effectually achieve the goals that he had to bring every person in the church to maturity in Christ. And as we have worked through this, though, let's keep in mind, what this passage is about. We've seen that Paul is arguing that Christians should be ready to give up their rights for one another, to avoid damaging one another's consciences, to keep people well grounded within the community of faith, that there are no obstacles to the gospel, and that he has worked hard to achieve that level of uh, unobstructed gospel proclamation, and we considered last time the very end of chapter nine, right about uh, how Paul was working to ensure that people come to and endure in faith. Uh, that was not a passage about losing personal salvation if we're not well disciplined, but working hard for one another be, as as God's people, because having others in the gospel with us is the true prize in any contest of ministry. And now, that context for a deep concern for others is crucial as we come to chapter 10, and specifically these verses, because these verses are about people proving to be faithless and God being displeased with them and strewing their bodies about in the wilderness. So so in that light, we must remember that this whole section in chapters 8 to 10 is not about what you should do because you are worried about your own salvation, but because, but about what you should do in concern for your fellow Christian. So this is a really profound exhortation for you to be concerned about other people. And we have an immediately obvious admonition for Christians across history then that is immediately relevant to us. Paul's ethical imperative here within the whole stream of thought about how some things you do might damage someone else's faith shows us how we do genuinely need to be ready to give up our rights and strive for excellence in relating to our brothers and sisters because our neglect in these matters might prove to be what lets someone else drift from following Christ. So far from being a reminder that supposedly you might lose your election or something, as some writers have said, this is a reminder that you cannot tell if someone next to you is elect, and so you should not abuse them within the community of faith in case that is what might put a block between them and Christ. And the main point, then, is that God, God has always expected his one people to love one another well so that we don't drive anyone out. God has always expected his one people to love one another well so that we don't drive anyone out. We are going to think about this in three different ways. So the unity of God's people in structure, the unity of God's people in sacrament, and the unity of God's people in salvation. Obviously, the emphasis is on how we are one people and applying that in how we deal with one another in concern. And so we think about the unity of God's people in structure. So, so 1 Corinthians 10, to 5, emphasizes several crucial points, actually, about, about how New Testament Christians are united to Old Testament believers as God's one people in Christ. Now, now, these theological points actually do tell us a lot about how we need to treat one another well. This, this chapter is still about how we treat other Christians for the sake of propagating and preserving faith in the gospel. I mean, even if we, if we jump down to, to, as Paul summarizes the material here in verse 24, he tells us, "...let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor." And that's what these truths need to exhort us to do. That is the concern running throughout all of these chapters, which is the context for us in these five verses. And now, as we look at these five verses, we can summarize them to say that despite how God's people have always had immense blessings, some of those people proved to be without Christ. And that's a sobering reality. That, that those who belong to Christ's people can prove not to belong Christ himself. And that confronts us. That the way we use our Christian liberty and the way that we deal with one another in, in the church, those things are immensely important. We bear one another's burdens, as Paul specifically told us, especially when someone is in sin, so that we don't conduct ourselves uselessly, as Paul wanted to avoid, and and let others destroy themselves even while they live among God's people. So that promotes a powerful concern for us. The, The list of blessings, if you look at verses 1 to 4, the list of blessings there highlights the unity of God's people across the Testaments. So, so there's a substantial link be- between God's people in ancient Israel and, and the church today. So saints today and saints then partake of identical spiritual blessings. So right, even as we consider this morning, Reformed people use the term the covenant of grace, to refer to God's one plan of salvation to, to rescue all his elect in the same way by Christ's work, whether their faith looks backwards to what Christ did, as is the case with us, or whether their faith in the Old Testament looked forward to what the Christ would do as was the case for Old Testament believers. Now, now I want to dig into that just a little bit more. And the first point of unity we see here uh, is that the Israelite believers are one with all believers. So some people think that these are stories about how God dealt with the people in the past, and now there's a, a different way that God deals with his people today. And we see in our text that That's not true, that that we are linked to the people of Israel as the continuation of God's nation, albeit with obviously different appearances. But but structurally, we are joined to Israel as God's people. Now, verse 1 points this out in a very uh, interesting way. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, our fathers, were under the cloud. Now strikingly here, Paul wrote to Gentiles about our fathers, referring to Old Testament saints. So God has one people across all of the ages, and Abraham, Moses, and David, and others, are our spiritual fathers. The emphasis uh, is on Jew and Gentile believers having the same fathers, so as Galatians 3.29 tells us. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. There is a deep unity for God's people of all times because the church is Israel. God does not have a geopolitical nation now, but he does have a nation under word and sacrament. Now, here's the thing. The point, the reason why this is actually really important for you, uh, the point of this structural unity of God's people means that the Old Testament is in no way simply a, a collection of moral examples but as a history of your family, everyone who, who trusts in Christ is Abraham's child, which means the scripture is about our people, our fathers. So these are not exempl- you know, mere random exemplary people but your people, your fathers who who trusted God, who struggled to walk with Him, and they offer hope of knowing that God keeps His people despite our immense failures. So, So the narratives of Scripture, they apply to you in showing you that your fellow church members I think this is a really important thing to gather. Your fellow church members are not optional friends whom you may disregard. The church is your family. Many families are dysfunctional, but we know that families should work together to ensure that everyone is loved. And this means that As God's family with our fathers described throughout both testaments, you don't have permission to pick and choose whom you like and whom, with whom you would have a relationship within the church. God obligates you to love your entire family. You have to speak to us. You have to. You have to accept us. You you have to relate, engage, and, and help all of us. God has not given you the right even to withhold your fellowship from this family. The unity of God's people in structure shows us how we are one family. Let's think about... Another aspect of this text, though, the unity of God's people in sacrament. So we've camped so far on how Israelite believers were the fathers of believers in the church and so the church is an extension of israel as god's people and now we need to see how god organized his people in a similar in in a common way which which is described in this text in sacramental terms as baptism. So, so we see in verse 1 that, that God led our fathers under the guidance of the cloud through the sea, which verse 2 says those actions were their baptism into Moses. Now, that's a, that should be a really affirming point for Reformed people, shouldn't it? So as, as Israel walked through the Red Seas, parted waters, Scripture says that was their baptism. Baptists, our Baptist friends, believe that the word baptism means immersion. But in Exodus, right, God's enemies, the Egyptians, were the ones who were immersed. While God's people baptized, by staying outside the water. So baptism doesn't require immersion. This, this baptism, however, tells us something far more important. I hope that's a useful point for you. But But there's something far more important. It, this baptism tells us that God has always organized his people under a sacrament that will include true believers and those who partake of only the outward blessings of the covenant community. So again, our our Baptist friends contend that the New Testament clearly describes an instance of infant baptism. But Israel didn't leave their babies on the shore of the Red Sea when they were baptized into Moses in Exodus 14. The the children of of God's people were baptized in that event as the Holy Spirit explains to us in 1 Corinthians 10. And, And since Paul's goal in 1 Corinthians 10 was to exhort Christians to care about one another, this Israelite baptism needs to be similar to ours. And the point is that the baptized community must work to ensure that every baptized person becomes a, a true partaker of what baptism represents. Christ himself. It's, it's right, we We baptize our children because God has always included the children of believers in his covenant community and, and baptism has replaced circumcision as the outward sign of that and God's people have always been marked with A sign that designates the, what we call the outward administration of the covenant, its external features of the covenant blessings. So people who are within the community that receives God's word and God's blessings. But that sign has always been given to some who may prove not to be truly God's, which is why we continue Baptizing babies, babies according to Scripture's rules. Now, hardly. Let's let's circle back because hardly a mere intellectual point about baptism. We need to realize that that this theology applies in that God has made a community bound together in baptism that is a direct recipient of God's blessings as a as a community. But not all who taste of those blessings of the preached words of encouraging fellowship of the communion of saints etc are actually digesting those in a saving way hebrews 6 verse 7 and 8 describes this phenomenon uh, the same blessings that rain upon the entire ground right they that some people, even though they receive the rain, sprout crops of belief and others sprout crops of unbelief. Now, to be even more specific, this baptismal theology confronts you with not a fear about your own salvation as a believer, but the real need for concern about your baptized neighbor whose faith you cannot see with infallible eyes. So this is an exhortation to be concerned about that sin infection because you and your treating them as Christians should may be the vaccine in a sense. We are, in light of that. We are responsible to care for those who are baptized into Christ because baptism ties us together. We should bear one another's burdens. The baptisms you witness are not photo opportunities, but are God's actions of obligating you to that person in ways that will not damage their faith. The unity of God's people in in sacrament means that you cannot be against one another. You you cannot harbor grudges. You you cannot gossip. You cannot exclude others and, and actually cannot even decide to exclude yourself because that might be the thing that pushes someone with Christ's baptism out of Christ's body. The unity of God's people in sacrament does tie together Old and New Testament saints, which which is an incredible thing to consider, but it also ties each of you together in all of the things of your life. Let's think lastly about the unity of God's people in salvation. We saw that despite differences in appearance, the church is substantially linked to Israel, which was clear at least in sacramental continuity, but now we want to consider that there was a far more substantial unity in how believing Israelites and believers today are saved in the same way by Jesus Christ. So if we turn our attention to verses three and four, they tell us that everyone who was baptized into Moses re- received the same spiritual food and drink that we receive. Now right, it can be easy to think, in light of what we've already said, that these verses are about an equivalent of the Lord's Supper, and that's what's meant by spiritual food since it follows on an Israelite equivalent of baptism. But we should not think of the spiritual provision as an Old Testament Lord's Supper. Uh, Paul will get to that, but, but not here. This is uh, We should think of this as that which was supernaturally provided directly from Christ because the text tells us. So we read about how God supernaturally provided food, And drink. And now we read here that God provided supernaturally things directly from Christ. And the text tells us that Christ was the rock that provided these things. Paul would get to the Lord's Supper shortly, but not yet. And what's really, really crucial about this is it helps you read your Bible. We are explicitly told that Christ was present in the Old Testament with, with God's people and that he was the rock supplying their spiritual food. Now, Christ was not literally a stone rock, but was the rock, in contrast to that stone rock, the rock that followed them. The spiritual food then is that manna and Water provided spiritually, supernaturally, in Exodus 16 and 17. And above that, though, whatever complexities in explaining exactly the rock was Christ means, in in terms of figural language, setting aside those complexities, the point is extremely clear that the Israelites had access to the same kind of benefits that Christians have, and both have them from Christ himself. Reverend Pearson has guided us so well through the book of Numbers over the previous months, and he has guided us specifically to Christ in all of those passages. And, And here, you see the reason why preachers are supposed to proclaim Christ from Old Testament texts. Christ, who is God's eternal Son, was truly present as the Savior of, of God's people even before he came to do the incarnate work that grounds that salvation. Jesus was serious in John 14 when he said, No one comes to the Father except through him, because he was and is the Savior of all of God's people, regardless of if it's, whether before or after he came to do his work on earth. Now, right, that underscores, really pointedly, how you need to be in a good relationship with God. Strikingly, we see in verse 5, how even those among God's covenant community, those who are baptized and participating in external features of the covenant of grace, cannot they cannot rely on anything but Jesus. Some people among Israel, as Paul interpreted Israel's defeat in Numbers 14, they were overthrown. Killed. We could translate that phrase, their bodies were strewn about because God was displeased with them. You must, you must actually have Christ. You must not rely on baptism or, or church attendance for salvation. You have to have Christ to be saved. Right, that presents us with a really profound question. I've been among the church for so long. I've been participating in church attendance. Maybe I was baptized. Maybe I come to small groups. Do I believe in Jesus Christ? If you do have Christ, if you have trusted in Him, then you must care that others have him as well. So worry more, in a sense. I'm not criticizing legitimate worry, but we need to have a real genuine worry more about sin stealing your brethren than illness in the tube. That will not go away. We cannot assume that everyone gathering here each Sunday knows the Lord just because they come week by week by week. We throw ourselves in, into working together to build each other up in Christ, giving up rights to protect each other's consciences, and, and, and working to keep the gospel before one another. That, those are the things we are supposed to be and need to be doing we don't live right and let's let's pull this we don't live the christian life in fear for our eternal security because because faith in jesus should comfort us of that but we do live the christian life concerned that our brothers and sisters are true sharers in the gospel with us We who have tasted and who have digested these blessings in a saving way know the deep satisfaction, the peace and the comfort that come from knowing Christ. And we long for God's family to be bigger. And that is why we are concerned about people in this way. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful that you have given us a church family and that we see that your uh, history, your authoring of history, is the thing that has always made a people for yourself everywhere, and that you have brought that people together because of Christ. We celebrate our Savior. We're glad that we belong to Jesus. And we pray, God, that those who gather here so often to hear about Him would know Him. We pray, Lord, for salvation. We pray also that you would prick our hearts to be concerned about those who would gather among us. We pray that we would always be on the lookout to help one another because we don't want our ministries to prove useless. We want to do things well. We want to love one another well so that as we go through the wilderness, we would not lose anyone. Help us to think that way, that we would love our brothers and sisters like that because we love our Savior so richly, because he gave himself for us, that he might make us his. We pray these things in his name, for his sake. Amen.